great to be with you as we uh, continue this series on 1 Samuel, looking for a leader. Uh, Let's pray as we start today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our Redeemer and our Rock. Amen. Well, uh, on September 30 in 1938, Neville Chamberlain, the Prime Minister of uh, the United Kingdom, had just come back uh, from uh, Germany. Uh, And uh, as he got off the plane, the quote that was attributed to him in in front of the the media uh, that were there and and the crowd that was there uh, were, were these words, I trust Adolf Hitler. I trust Adolf Hitler. Uh, The crowd was elated. He just got off the plane from a meeting with Adolf Hitler in Munich and uh, his words were he held up a piece of paper uh, and it turned out to be a worthless piece of paper that he was holding up and he said, in my hand I I hold a piece of paper Uh, and it was a written agreement between Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler that they wouldn't go to war together, that they would actually uh, only use diplomatic... uh, Uh, mechanisms to resolve uh, the issues and the tensions. Well, the the, the euphoria was palpable, the the excitement and the relief in in the crowd as he said, I have a piece of paper. They'd all been deceived. They'd all been fooled. They'd all been outwitted by an evil man, Adolf Hitler. And you know, uh, in uh, 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, uh, it was in the readings, if you do the Bible in one year, uh, in this past week, in chapter 2, verse 11, the Apostle Paul talks about being outwitted by Satan uh, and being ignorant of his schemes. Like Neville Chamberlain was outwitted by Adolf Hitler. He was ignorant of his schemes. He'd been outwitted and that is the danger for us as we uh, live in the world that we are outwitted by Satan and we are ignorant of his schemes but friends I've got good news because God's word helps us to shed light on the enemy's tactics so that we are not outwitted by Satan and we are not ignorant of his schemes and we're going to see as we go through the story today what it is that his mechanisms are so that we may not be like Neville Chamberlain and be outwitted, caught off guard. Because you know uh, in Ephesians chapter 6 the Apostle Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. It's not neutral turf, this world that we live in. It's not sort of neutral ground. No, it's contested ground. There is a spiritual battle that we are in the midst of. Before we go through the story, I want to remind you of the story in uh, chapter 10. Uh, this comical story where the whole nation of Israel has gathered the 12 tribes. Um, Saul has already been anointed in private as king, but this is the kind of public acknowledgement of, of Saul as king. And, and, and Samuel does this thing where he gets all the tribes out one by one to sort of narrow it down to the tribe and then to the clan and then to Saul. And it gets to, uh, it gets to Saul, I don't know if you remember the story, and no one can find him. And, and so, so Samuel's like, Lord, where is he? Where's Saul? And, um, and God's like, he's hiding in the supplies. 
So, so, so these men, they, they, the whole nation's gathered, they're sort of like, you know, waiting, where is he, where's this king, our new king that we've asked for, and the men have to go off, and they go look amongst the baggage, they look amongst the supplies, and there he is hiding, cowering, and terrified, and, and they drag him out, you can just imagine, you know, one on each arm, and, he's, and he was really tall, it says he's a head taller than all the rest, but, you know, dragging him out, and, um, and, then, and then the people are like, Long live the king, uh, which is like, you know, it's a pretty, a pretty interesting start to uh, this king's career. Uh, but there's this other group of people, and you can hardly blame them, who are like, how can this guy save us? At the end of chapter 10, how can this guy save us? Like, this is our king? We are, to put it lightly, screwed. How can this guy save us? And so, so that's the question that kind of hangs over Saul's head in chapter 10. How can this guy save us? And then, and then it's like in chapter 10, we get the answer to that question. Saul's got this question hanging over him. How can this guy save us? And then chapter 11, verse 1 says, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. In other words, we're about to find out. How can this guy save us? Nahash has just attacked the people of Jabesh Gilead. So we're about to find out how this guy can save us, this guy who was cowering amongst the supplies. So it's not very promising, is it? And the first thing I want you to notice as we go through this story, and I do hope you'll keep it open, 1 Samuel chapter 11, I want you to notice in verse 1, the enemy of our souls. I want you to notice the enemy of our souls. Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. So not only does Saul have an enemy within, which is his own doubts and insecurities and his humanity and frailty, but he has an enemy without called Nahash, who who is attacking God's people. And we, friends, also have an enemy within and enemies without. We've got an enemy within called sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, God says, abstain from evil desires, what do they do? Which wage war against your soul. Abstain from sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Just like Nahash wants to destroy the Israelites, so does sin wage war against our souls. That's the enemy within. And then later on in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 11, he says, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for what? For someone to devour. Friends, this is the enemy of our souls. It's the flesh within us. It's the devil without. And thirdly, it's the world. The world that, that, that in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, do not be conformed to what? The pattern of this world. There's a pattern, there's a mold that it's trying to squeeze you into that is not the mold of Christ, that is not the mold of the life that he wants for us in eternity, but is a mold that will shrivel us and crush us and destroy us. Friends, this is the enemy of our souls. And I want to note a few things in the story about the enemy, three things I want you to notice about the enemy of our souls. The first is the enemy's presence. And if we can get the slide up of the map of Israel, I want to show you uh, the context in which the Israelites uh, were and how they, they, where they were in in the uh, geopolitical scenes. On the west, this is the kingdom of Israel here, 
uh, uh, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, that actually hasn't happened yet in terms of the story of the Bible. Uh, but to the, uh, to the west, uh, you've got the Philistines, to the south, the Edomites, then the Moabites here, the Ammonites, the kingdom of Aram and D- Damascus and the Phoenicians, so like Tyre and Sidon. And these were all noted enemies out to destroy the Israelites. I mean, they were literally surrounded by the enemy. I mean, what chance have they got? And doesn't it feel like that sometimes, living as a Christian in the world today? That we're literally surrounded. Uh, Temptation, whether it's temptation, your particular temptation. It's just so easy, as easy as breathing, a besetting sin, a particular situation that you're in, or a relationship that's got putting strain on you. It's like we're surrounded by enemies. I mean, you know, our, educa- our worldview is that the world is a neutral place, there's no good, there's no evil, and it's just a rational, you just need rational whatevers. But, but no, we live in a contested space and we are surrounded by the enemy. This is the enemy of ourselves. I want you to notice the, the enemy's presence, firstly, but I want you to notice the enemy's tactics. Because Nahash doesn't attack uh, a city like Jerusalem here, that's well fortified and safe and in in the middle of the geography, well protected. No, he goes for Jabesh Gilead, which isn't on the map, but which is basically where that city Jerash is. So Nahash is the king of the Ammonites here, and there's the little tiny town of Jabesh Gilead up there. Because the enemy's not stupid. He doesn't go for your strong points. He doesn't go for, well, you're well fortified and, and in control. He's, he's not dumb and he doesn't play nice. He goes after your soft spots. That's what he's doing. It's right there. It's a little town and we'll attack there. So I, I wonder where your Jabesh Gilead is. Where's your Jabesh? If your soul was a map or your life was a map, where would your Jabesh Gilead be? Where are you an easy target? Where are you a soft target for the enemy? Don't be outwitted by Satan. Don't be unaware of his schemes. He doesn't go for you in your strong spots. He goes for you in Jabesh Gilead. And that means we've got to put in double efforts to make, as Paul says, I think, in Romans 14, to make no opportunity for the flesh. We've got to be vigilant about the enemy of our souls. We've seen his presence. We've seen his tactics. I want you to see his purpose in verse 2. The men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will be subject to you. But Nahash replied, I will make a treaty with you only on the condition that I gouge out the right eye of every one of you and so bring disgrace on all Israel. And so we see the enemy's purpose. His purpose is to devastate, to bring disgrace. He wants to see them humiliated. So whilst God's purpose is, is to bless his people, the enemy's is to curse. Whilst God wants to prosper, the enemy wants to harm. While God wants to elevate us, God, the enemy wants to humiliate us. And whilst God wants to see us empowered, the enemy wants to see us incapacitated. This is the enemy's purpose. I mean, Jesus says it in, in John chapter 10, verse 10. He says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. 
but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. So Nahash comes along to destroy God's people. So they do something that Paul actually does in Romans chapter 7. They cry out for help. Verse 3, it says, give us seven, they say to Nahash, give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to rescue us, we will surrender to you. They're crying out for help. And isn't that exactly what Paul does in Romans chapter 7 with his battle against his enemies? Let me read some of Romans 7 for you. Paul says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war, there's that spiritual warfare language again, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man that I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? It's the power of the enemy. He's in the grip of sin. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Well, the the people of Jabesh Gilead are sending out messengers. Who will rescue us from our powerful enemy, Nahash? Look at verse 4 in 1 Samuel 7. When the messengers came to Gibeah of, of Saul and reported these terms to the people, they all wept aloud. Just then, Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen and he asked, what's wrong with everyone? Why are they weeping? And then they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh Gilead had said. When Saul heard their words, the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him and he burned with anger. And so we move from the enemy of our souls to the difference the Spirit makes. Can you see the difference the Spirit makes here? So the question at the end of chapter 10 was, how can this guy save us? And now we have the answer. How can this guy save us? I mean, hiding among the supplies. What a pansy. What hope have we got? What a weakling. How can this guy save us? How could this pansy become our protector? How could this wiener become a warrior? How can this guy save us? Well, Here's the answer. Verse 6. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him. That's how that he can save us. By the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God rushes upon Saul. He he burns with anger. He calls for troops. He musters them um, at Bezek in verse 8, which is just across the river from Jabesh Gilead up north. And then in verse 11, the next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, which is between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. How can this guy save us from Nahash? It's by the Spirit of God. Saul the farmer, in verse 5, has been transformed into Saul the fighter, in verse 11. Saul the loser, back in chapter 10, has been transformed by the Spirit into Saul the leader, in verse 11. And ultimately, Saul, the scaredy cat, hiding amongst the baggage, has been transformed into Saul, the saviour, in verse 11. What a difference the Spirit makes. What a difference the Spirit makes. 
Saul couldn't defeat the enemy in his own strength. Saul was cowering amongst the baggage in his own strength. He needed the mighty power of the Spirit of God to fall upon him and to empower him in the strength of God. And you know, it's no different for us and it was no different for Jesus. The second reading was Jesus in the wilderness. See, he went and fought an enemy in the wilderness, didn't he? It wasn't Nahash. What was his name? Satan. But did you notice that he didn't go in his own strength? Who let him out there? The Spirit of God. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to fight the devil in the same way that Saul, filled with the Spirit, was led to fight Nahash the Ammonite. Luke says that he went out in the power of the Spirit, Jesus went out in the power of the Spirit, and he won. He didn't give in to the enemy. He triumphed over him, not giving in to sin or Satan. And he came back in the power of the Spirit. And so if King Saul needed the power of the Spirit to fight Nahash the Ammonite and our Lord Jesus Christ needed the power of the Holy Spirit to defeat the devil in the wilderness, then how much more, brothers and sisters in Christ, do we need the Holy Spirit in our battle? against the enemy and yet how many of us do it in our own strength and in the power of the flesh when we have this wonderful gift of the spirit that God has given us to fight in what a difference the spirit makes and so Saul has this awesome victory in the power of the spirit which leads us to the third and final thing I want you to notice in the story and that's the renewal the kingdom requires at the end of the story. In, in, in verse 14, you see this renewal that the kingdom requires. Samuel said to the people, come, let us go to Gilgal and there renew the kingship. Now, why do they need to renew the kingship? He's just been acknowledged in chapter 10 as king. Why do they need to renew the kingship? Well, I think there's two reasons. If you, if you think about it, back in chapter 8... Back in chapter 7, God had just delivered them, fought a battle for them against the Philistines and he won them, remember? And they set up the stone of remembrance, thus far the Lord has helped us. In other words, God is our king, God is our fighter, God is our protector. And then right on the heels of that, they rejected him in chapter 8. We want a human king. We don't want you as king, even though you've just fought for us. You've just, we want a human king to go out and fight our battles. So the first reason they need to renew the kingdom is because they've rejected God as their king and asked for a human king. But then he provides them a human king in chapter 10. And at the end of chapter 10, some of them are going, Nah, not this guy. Sure, we asked for a king. And you gave us Saul? Nah, not him. So they've rejected God as king. And then they've rejected the king that they asked for, that God provided for them. And so they need to renew the kingship in two senses. They need to renew the kingship in the sense of renewing their allegiance to God as the king of Israel and the one who fights for them and the one who protects them. And they need to renew the kingship in the sense that, that God has placed King Saul as the king over them. And they need to repent of their rejection of God's king and to submit to him and embrace him and to celebrate the victory that he has won through King Saul. Are you with me? They need to renew the kingship. And you know, today, King Jesus is the one that God has appointed to save the people and humanity. It's through King Jesus. It's not politically correct to say so, but it's not through Allah. It's not through Buddha. 
the appointed king that God has chosen to deliver his people is King Jesus. And to reject God's king is to reject the salvation that he has wrought through his death and resurrection. So for them to renew the kingship, it was to say, Lord, we're sorry, we rejected you as king, but you still saved us nonetheless. You were still gracious to us and rescued us. And we thank you and we praise you that you're a good and gracious king. And God, we rejected your king as the unique means through which you saved us. And now we say sorry and we repent and we declare our allegiance to the king that you've chosen. So in verse 15, Saul, all the people went to Gilgal, made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord and Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. What a good and gracious king. We've just rejected him as king. We've just rejected the king that he's provided and the very king that we rejected is the one through whom he rescued the Jabesh Gileadites despite our rebellion and sin and rejection of him. What a good and gracious king. We're going to live another day because he rescued us. It's the gospel. It's Ephesians 2 verse 8. Paul says, For you are saved by grace. Can you imagine the Jabesh Gileadites? You're saved by grace through faith in God's king. And this is not from yourselves. It's God's gift, not from works. They were hopeless against the Nahash the Ammonite. It's through the works of God's king, King Saul, so that no one can boast except in the finished work of King Saul on their behalf, in the power of the Spirit. That's the renewal that the kingdom requires, to bow the knee to King Jesus. who's fought our battles on our behalf against Satan, sin and death on the cross. Not by works, but by grace. And that leads to a great celebration. That's why we're a singing people. That's why we're a rejoicing people. That's why the fruit of the Spirit is joy and peace and patience because of the victory that he has won on our behalf. Glory to God. So the story started with the enemy of our souls. And we saw his presence being surrounded, his tactics focusing on our weak spots and his purpose to maim and to kill and destroy. But then we saw the the difference the Spirit makes coming in power upon Saul and him being a mighty deliverer for the people of Jabesh Gilead, converting him from a scaredy cat into a saviour. That's the difference the Spirit makes. And the pressing question for us is, are we fighting in the power of the flesh and in our own strength or in the power of the Spirit that he provides. And finally, we saw the the renewal that the kingdom requires, acknowledging that we've rejected, we reject God's king and we we reject his lordship over our lives. And we need to turn back and go, you're a good and gracious king, you forgive us anyway, you fight for us anyway, despite our rejection, we renew the kingdom and and, and bow the knee to King Jesus. And so to, to wrap up, I think it would be a mistake for me to say to you by way of application, be like Saul. Be like Saul. You know how the rest of the story goes. Look, it's true in chapter 11, I, I don't think we see Saul any better than we do in chapter 10. This is the high point for Saul. But you know how the story goes. Saul rejects God. He ultimately rejects God and he comes under God's judgment. So 
So don't be like Saul. If you be like Saul, you'll end up like Saul. But, but the other reason not to say be like Saul is because Saul was God's unique and chosen king, the anointed one, the Messiah, the chosen deliverer for God's people. And that's not you, I'm sorry. That's not me. I'm not the chosen deliverer and Messiah for God's people. This is a unique and chosen king that God has set apart. You see, we have this this habit of making the Bible all about us and, and making us the hero of the story, but we're not. God is the hero of the story and God's king. The Bible is about God as king and the king that he has chosen as the Messiah and saviour of his people. If you're going to read yourself into the story, then I think you need to see yourself in the Jabesh Gileadites who are in the hands of a powerful enemy, Nahash, who are utterly helpless and on death's door, completely powerless against the enemy and in desperate need of a saviour, king, to come to the rescue, to rescue you from the hand of the enemy. So friends, King Saul does not point to us. King Saul points us to the true and better Saul, who who didn't just come charging from, from Gibeah on the map up to Jabesh Gilead. No, he came all the way from heaven down to earth to rescue us from the clutches of evil and sin. You see, Jesus is the true and better Saul who defeated our enemies, Satan, sin and death, not by inflicting God's wrath on someone else like Saul did, inflicting God's wrath on Nahash the Ammonite, but by allowing God's wrath against us for our sins to be inflicted upon him on the cross. That's how he defeated the enemy. Do you see it? Jesus is the true and better Saul who never gave in to sin when he was tempted in the wilderness. And so Satan never had anything on him. And he lived a perfect life so that he could offer a perfect life as a sacrifice for our sins to make us perfect in God's eyes. Jesus is the true and better Saul. He cancelled the record of debt that stood against us, our sins. Then Jesus set it aside, God nailed it to the cross and and Colossians 3 verse 15 says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. That's our king, that's our mighty and victorious king but you know it gets even better because Just as Saul was filled with the Holy Spirit of God, our King Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God. But unlike Saul, who stayed dead, our Lord Jesus Christ, the King, was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit to new life. And then he ascended into heaven and he poured out the same Spirit to live inside of his disciples and followers who've been washed and cleansed of sin so that we can be a fit temple for the Spirit to live inside. The same Spirit that rose Jesus from the grave lives inside of us and he gives us his Spirit so that we can fight in his power. And the good news is that we fight from victory and we don't fight for victory. Because if we were fighting for victory, we'd all be doomed. Because the enemy's got something on us. It's called sin. But we don't fight for victory. We fight from the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ in his death and resurrection. But we make no mistake, we do fight. And so I want to leave you with I think two ways in which we fight and two things that we 
fight with? We fight, firstly, we fight with prayer. This is what makes the partners in prayer thing so important and vital. We don't live in neutral space. We live in contested place. We we live in contested space. The world and the devil. We pray for the Spirit's power to remove the veil over people's eyes of our children as they're out learning that the seed would be planted in their hearts and that and that it wouldn't be like the seed on rocky ground where the devil comes and takes it away we pray in the power of the spirit that's the weapon that he's given us and friends be encouraged this church is a place of prayer that we would increase in that that we would see god's power displayed in the lives of the people around us and in our young people we fight with prayer and we fight with the sword of the spirit it's the only offensive weapon in the armor of God out of all of the armor of God in Ephesians 6 the only attacking weapon is the sword of the spirit which is what the word of God because our enemy is a liar and he poisons minds he blinds minds and he leads away down deception and untruth and so we fight with the truth of God's word to teach it and so we pray as we hear the word of God here and as our children hear the word of God out there that their minds would be open to the truth and they would see and know the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and the salvation that he brings. We fight with prayer and we fight with the word of God in the power of the Spirit. Two things to fight against, that we fight against. In Romans 8, we fight that, that our biggest enemy is the sinful desires of the flesh that wage war against our soul. And in, in, in Romans 8, verses 13 and 14, uh, the, the Apostle Paul says that we put, them, we put the deeds of the body to death by the power of the Spirit. You, you, that we still have this sin, but the victory has already been won by the Lord Jesus Christ and He's given us the Spirit to fight against sin and sinful desires which wage war against our souls. And this is a battle that we need to take seriously. How many of us are just lying over and have given up in that battle? But we live a risen king and we fight in the power of the spirit and we put those things to death and we fight from victory and not for victory. And secondly, we have a commission from our commanding officer, King Jesus, to go into all the world and make disciples with the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and the gospel. To see, like the people of Gibeah saw people who were in the hands of the evil one up in Jabesh Gilead, that we see the people around us who are in the grip of darkness and of the evil one. And we've been commissioned by our commanding officer to go into all the world and to make disciples and to proclaim the message of the gospel, which is the power for salvation, to take ground for the enemy. Malcolm talks about holding ground, but we, and we take ground as well by proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ crucified and risen, that people might be brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And this is spiritual warfare. And we do it from victory, not for victory. Amen? Amen.